Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali. And we are excited to be joined by what have many have said, and myself included, uh, a rock star of the Democratic Party, uh, Mallory McMorrow, who is a state uh, senator in Michigan. And if you did not catch her viral moment, uh, which feels like either it was 100 years ago or just a couple of months ago, um, gave a blueprint in how to fight back against uh, horrible, horrific Republican attacks Um including the use of pedophiles and groomers, uh, then you are missing out and you need to Google her. But Waj, um, you please start off with um, with the brilliant state senator and introduce her to our audience. Yeah, so Mallory McMurrow, I have to give shout out to the, the vibrant 13th district of Michigan. That's what she represents <laughs> uh, since 2019. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're going to get into the origin story later because I think it's going to be very inspiring for many of our listeners who feel overwhelmed and exhausted and feel like, who am I? I'm a nobody. And just to let you know, I'm a nobody. I love nobodies. Some of my favorite people are nobodies. And, and they feel like they can't, you know, get into the ring and, and change the, the discourse and policies of this country. And I think Mallory represents a, a great shining example. But, you know, jumping right into it, Mallory, I, I want to ask you about this this moment, right? This moment that went viral, uh, this four minute speech that you did, which now has more than 15 million views. Daniel and I have often talked about, you know, our, we're exasperated that when Republicans call Democrats and, and, and liberals pedophiles, we weren't hearing a robust response. And in April, your Republican state senator colleague uh, said this hateful lie, which I hope you don't mind me just uh, quoting. She said, you quote, groom and sexualize kindergartners. And while so many Democrats were saying, you know what, ignore it. You said, no, no, I'm going to respond. I just, I want to, I want to take us back to that moment, which inspired Mm -hmm. you to get up and say, enough is enough. Let me respond and respond in the way that you did. Yeah. And thank you, A, for acknowledging that uh, time is a construct because it was 100 million years ago. Right. And like yesterday, um, what is time? But it, um, 
I think we've all gone through this, right? We, we've all grown up with the idea that bullies just want attention and that you can't give them attention because then they win. But what we've seen happen, especially since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and all the way through to now, you know, to take it back a little bit, in Michigan, we saw the first protest ostensibly about COVID-19 restrictions on April 15th of 2020 was a traffic jam protest. And then April 30th was a heavily armed, basically invasion of our state capital. It was like the trial run for January 6th. Mm -hmm. And what we saw at the time, you know, was nooses, swastikas, Confederate flags, somebody who was carrying a naked brown haired Barbie doll that was supposed to be Gretchen Whitmer on a noose. And it was something much darker. And as we've seen, you know, the idea of grooming and pedophilia has a long, dark history, but it also has roots more recently in QAnon, that if you buy into the QAnon conspiracy, then you fundamentally believe that the government is actually run by a deep state and a Satanist cabal of pedophiles. And we see what happens when this takes hold. We have seen gunmen break into pizza places believing that there are children trapped in a basement and it's incredibly dangerous so what what i kind of recognized was there's been this long buildup, and some of these conspiracy theories were pulled out of the darkest corners of the internet and are now being used by one of our two major political parties and being used to attack kids like there is probably no more vulnerable group of kids than trans kids. So we saw, you know, first was the fear mongering around critical race theory in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. Then it was on the LGBTQ community. And then it really honed in on trans kids and really fear mongering um, around around them. And I so I read this email that went out and and Waji summed it up perfectly. You know, it accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing kindergartners. And that same day, I was visiting a high school in my district and I was talking to, you know, 15, 16, 17 year olds. And I was talking about my job. And usually this is a friendly meet and greet of how did you get into this work and how can we volunteer? But when we started Q&A, the first girl who raised her hand, she I think she was 15. And she 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 said, I'm queer. Why does the state hate me so much? And it was something about the fact that those two things happened on the same day that that I really recognized, you know, this attack isn't really about me um, because I'm fine at the end of the day. But if you are this girl who feels the need to ask her state senator why the state that she calls home hates her that we can no longer pretend that ignoring it is just going to make it go away because it's not going away. It's being pulled out into the open. Nobody's hitting back and it's causing real damage. So that's, you know, the the kind of long version of how we got to where we got to because we have to hit back and we have to take away its power. Otherwise, it's not going to go away. It's just going to keep growing and keep hurting more people. You know, and I, I, I thank you so much for for that explanation. And, you know, when I think about the 15 year old queer girl in class, um, I think about 
as as a black queer woman, I think about all of the ways in which we have made um, this country less safe for them, um, for a 15 year old to be worried, not just about what normal teenage things you should be worried about, but the fact that the state hates her, right. The fact that she needs to somehow live in fear. And, you know, the thing for me with regard to the pedophilia is that before QAnon, this was part of how you how the Republican Party pushed back against LGBTQ rights. This was the way in which, you know, uh, the entirety of the Reagan administration could allow gay people to die in the streets of HIV and AIDS and not even utter the name because it was this belief that you are this dirty, horrible community that is deserving, right? This is Mm -hmm. God's will. And so, you know, I, I think that to your point, The problem that I have with Democrats right now is that they do believe that if they turn their back, if they shrink, that somehow the bully will go away. And I'm of the school that if you punch the bully in the face, uh, hypothetically speaking, then they recognize that you are actually not to be messed with right? Then they actually are put on the defensive as opposed to you lurking in a corner saying, just don't see me, don't see me so long as I don't speak. And so what are some of the things for you that have come up in terms of the way that your pushback has been talked about as a blueprint for other Democrats at the state, local and national level and how to deal with this type of, um, I guess, new Republican or, or renewed Republican, um, vigor and assault on basic humanity and decency. Yeah. This speech has been dissected up and down and sideways and every single line has been picked apart in ways that, that I never imagined. But I think there's a few themes that have come out of it and in discussions that, that I hope are helpful is number one, there's a real issue with representation in our government, because the fact is, most of the groups that Republicans are targeting their attacks on are underrepresented in elected office in the first place. There are not enough members of the LGBTQ community. There are not enough people of color in our government. So you can attack critical race theory and diversity, equity, inclusion. You can attack the LGBTQ community. And I think, and I've been guilty of this in the past too, where if it's not really about me, too often, I think in our fear to say the wrong thing, we're not saying anything. And I think that is true of, of, of elected officials is you don't want to say the wrong thing, frankly, anybody who's in, in a public position. So the night before I gave my response, I spent a lot of time on the phone with Jeremy Moss, who's one of my colleagues, who's our only openly gay sitting senator, because I wanted to make sure I was stepping into it in a way that didn't try to make an issue about me that wasn't really about me, but also mm-hmm. hit back in a way that was going to be impactful. And I think that is my hope of what more of us can do. If you're afraid of saying the wrong thing, just ask, reach out to somebody, have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And I have found so much willingness of people saying, I appreciate you wanting to stand up with us. Here's how we can do it in a respectful way. Um, I also recognize, you know, I am a member of probably one of the more influential majority voting blocks. I am a white suburban, you know, straight woman. And the recognition of the fact that this hateful strategy is only going to work when a lot of people who look like me just kind of sit on the sidelines. So a lot of what I wanted to do Mm -hmm. was really speak directly to 
other white women um, who are not under attack, who are generally fine to say it's on us. Like we got to rally, get in the minivan, you know, get the wine, whatever we need to do. We got to stand up and save this thing because we cannot constantly expect that black women, that the gay community is going to stand up just to defend themselves because just by the very definition majority means there's more of you minority groups means there's there are less of you it is easy to punch at a smaller group of people but if we all rally together and decide just because we're okay doesn't mean this is okay this is not mm-hmm. what i want to raise my daughter in this is not a good culture where mm. you can target an other and demonize somebody to make you feel better about yourself so that's what i tried to do but my hope is you know, it's going to take all of us. And if you're not sure what to say, just ask people because they're willing to have that conversation with you as long as you come from a good place. From the New Yorker staff writer, Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Danielle and I have been critical. Uh, we try to be fair of the Democratic Party, but it, it comes from a source of wanting to empower them to fight back against what I think we can, and I'm making an assumption here, Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong, what we call a counter-majoritarian GOP force that is against our democracy, right? Mm-hmm. And historically, Democrats have always, you know, sometimes felt terrified to fight back because they believe they can engage in the identity politics and the culture war because the right wing has so weaponized it and accused Democrats of, you know... You can't win the culture war. But you did something in your response, and I'm glad you mentioned it, where you actively, rather I should say, you proactively said, I am, quote, I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. And you use that to proactively push back and put forward a narrative of diversity. As a straight, white mom, Christian white mom, a woman of faith, and I know faith is important to you uh, uh, and your background, this is against my values. And I thought that there was a very smart way of both using identity politics and actually waging into the culture war. And specifically, if you look at the latest data, right, 96% of Republicans in the House have voted 
against the right to use contraceptives in 2022. A majority of them are are against marriage equality. Uh, A a majority of them are against Roe v. Wade and also zero exceptions to rape and incest. Most of them don't believe in climate change, gun control. We could go down the list. It seems to me, Mallory, that when it comes to these hot button issues, and it's almost like God is delivering a gift to Democrats when it comes to the culture. Let's even book book bans. 80% of Americans are against book bans, right? How can Democrats use this moment to go all in on the culture war and finally, finally, finally kind of do a reversal and get the, the advantage on Republicans and win over the people? Yeah. So I think, number one, we have to acknowledge the culture wars for what they are, which from the Republican standpoint is made up bullshit. Like, let's just be real about it. Yes, there's real damage, but the idea somehow, and and the example that I like to use is the bills that have been moving around the country to ban trans kids from playing sports on the team that matches their gender Mm. identity. We had similar legislation moving in Michigan, even though our Democratic governor would veto these bills, but that didn't stop the Republicans from having hearing after hearing after hearing, you know, wasting time on what they were putting forward as the crisis of our time, right? They pulled this out of nowhere and said, this is the most important thing that we have to work on. The Michigan um, High School Athletic Association came out right away and said, these bills are completely unnecessary because we already have a process in place that has been working for 10 years, that if a student wants to apply to play on a sports team that matches their gender identity. They have to get approval from the team, the school, the family has to work with the community. Like there's a whole process and it works. And to put it into perspective in Michigan, this is a state of 10 million people. There are two kids every year who apply for the waiver to play on the sports, two kids. So if you are telling me that the crisis of our time is two kids (laughs) out of 10 million people, I'm sorry, but that's bullshit. And I think the better way for Democrats to engage in this is just to reveal how hollow it really is. Because Mm. I think as Democrats, I mean, we love research and data and analysis. And I think where we get trapped sometimes is we take the bait and then we're debating the issue on its merits when it doesn't have any merits. It is complete nonsense. So instead, the more effective thing to do is to say, this is nonsense. And it is just to distract from the fact that they're not doing it anything to help on inflation, to lower gas prices, to fix health care costs or access to fix the roads. I mean, all of those things, whether or not you are the parent school of the mass child, shootings, school mass shootings, right? If we actually care about protecting children, um, we would not be focused on whether or not a library might have a drag queen story time, which is another fake you know, crisis of our time. And we would focus on school shootings. So I think that is the way forward instead of don't take the bait. Don't fall for the trap because we know that it's manufactured. But if we leave it alone, it might be manufactured, but it is doing real damage to people. So we have to blunt the attack right away because they recoil pretty quickly when it, it points out that they don't actually have any policy proposals. And it's funny because nobody in the media actually asked them what their policy proposals are. They actually just fall for the bullshit. Um, One of the things, you know, I want to go back to what you said earlier with regard to white women and the majority, because uh, and 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 recognizing that you will be okay, Right. But it is other people who are under threat. And so what are you doing, you know, with the power that you have? Um, by virtue of being a white woman in America uh, to help those that um, are marginalized. And I have been 
very vocal and very angry uh, for quite some time at the 53% of white women that decided to vote for Donald Trump. And then the 56% in 2020 that decided to, again, vote for Donald Trump. And I wonder, you know, I want to ask you this, um, as a white Christian suburban mom, what is it about white women that just has them sit on the sidelines and allow everybody else to do the heavy lifting because you did the heavy lifting. You are doing the heavy lifting. And by virtue of what you have said and what you are doing are saying to, you know, your community, come with me. Right. And so I, I wonder what, what do you, what do you understand the obstacle to be Mallory and, and, and what is it that we can do to get other white women to talk to other white women instead of it being the likes of myself or Waj who, what we say falls on non-listening ears. And, and by well, the way, we've that... given you the power by the power of vested <laughs> in us. You are now the culture ambassador of all women. white women. Yes. So feel, feel free. free. <laughs> You got to be really careful in what context you say that, because that can be taken the wrong way really quickly. I saw somebody made a T-shirt of the like, I'm a straight white Christian married suburban. And out of context, I'm like, oh, my God, that sounds like a white nationalist. Like, that's not OK. Oh, my God. But I so I think a lot of it is fear. So when I ran for office for the first mm. time in 2018, I flipped a Republican district. And I think a lot of people who've gotten to know me recently think she must be from a Democratic stronghold because nobody else would be able to speak as forcefully if they were in a. But I represent Mitt Romney's hometown. And what I found wow. the first time I ran for office is it was a lot of white suburban women who either didn't vote consistently um, mm -hmm. believe it or not, voted with their husbands, regardless of kind of what their own beliefs yep. were. And there is a fear of if you're generally okay, I don't want to do anything to mess that up. And I think that mm. that causes people to, to naturally kind of retreat, especially if you see a tax being levied on somebody else, you recognize you're like, well, you know, my life isn't perfect. Things are still hard. I still got to get my kids to school. I got to pay bills. I got to do everything I need to do. I don't want to rock the boat. And when we look at a state like Virginia, where Glenn Youngkin got elected really by tapping into the frustrations of suburban white moms, who I think were, were rightfully burned out from the past few years with school closures, COVID restrictions. I mean, I had a baby during COVID. I tried to find childcare. I totally get it. Like it is not been easy. That doesn't mean that it has been as challenging it has as it has been for some people. But I think we have to acknowledge as Democrats, like it still sucks for everybody. And I think we have to give space um, to allow that because what I heard from some white women in my community who were similarly frustrated with school closures, COVID restrictions in the past few years, um, I had a long conversation with a woman who reached out to me and said that she joined this parent group to really advocate for change with her school board. And what she wanted was better communication and parent representation. But she called me because she said the group she joined started targeting diversity, equity, and inclusion, started targeting the LGBTQ community. And this woman told me in no uncertain terms, like, I'm not this, but I also don't have anywhere else to go. Like, I don't feel like I have an avenue to express my frustration. So part of what I was trying to do in my speech is give white women another way forward. It's like, we get you're frustrated and tired and burned out. I am too. 
but this is on us. Like this is our calling right now. We have to get together. And I have, am very thankful for enough black women in my life who've said to me in no uncertain terms, like go get your people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I heard, I heard it. Right. So I am go. And that's really what I've tried to focus on. And some people have asked me, you know, why haven't you identified other groups in your speech? And I'm like, cause, cause the reality is people like me, we're late. We're not too late because Mm -hmm. we still have a democracy for now. Um, but we are late to this. There have been people who've been doing this work much, much longer than we have. And that's my hope is, is kind of leveraging this platform. Um, I have been doing a lot of work with uh, groups like Red Wine and Blue, which if you haven't heard of this group, it is a group basically of suburban white moms around the country who are having this moment of realizing like, this is not okay. I want to do something. I have no idea where to start. So we did a virtual training on, you know, how to kind of get active in this space and how to become an advocate. And I joined them for a Zoom. I think they expected a few hundred people would show up and 8,000 women showed up on a Zoom. They had to upgrade their account. And like, that's exciting to me because I think there's a recognition from a lot of people like me, like, hey, we messed up. We're late. We got to go. How do we do it? And I think we have to figure out as as Democrats and people who care about this, how do we fill that void so we don't lose people who look like me, who want somewhere to go and need that channeled in a, a productive way, not in a negative way. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I think that's very important, Mallory, because you come from a battleground state, right? It's not California. It's not New York, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. They have these populations that we need. We need white workers. We need independence. We need those suburban white moms. And Mary Trump, our good friend, was praising you behind your back. And she said you had the ability to actually win over some of these Republicans. And they really responded specifically to your passion and authenticity. And I see a trend happening here. Even when you look at John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, right? They didn't go for Connor Lamb. And I joke about this. It seems like Connor Lamb was the choice of the Democratic establishment. He was like created like, it's like it's like the reboot of Weird Science. He was like created in like a, on a computer, uh, right? Like super moderate. He's moderate about everything. He's moderate about even being moderate. But instead, they went for this guy who was literally recovering from death in the hospital who wears overalls, John Fetterman, who trounced him in the primaries, right? And so what is it specifically, what did you do to really connect 
to these voters who are like, you know what, I'm going to give this young Mallory, a Democrat, a chance and, and let her flip this district because we need more of you to win in these competitive races. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's exactly that. We can't go out and run for office and have it feel like we were manufactured in a lab. Like people are imperfect and people will vote for you if they like you and they're not going to like you if they don't get to know you. And I hate using the word authenticity because it's overused, but I think that that's it, right? It's, it's, I ran for office and I was pretty blunt about who I am and what my attitude is. And I had some people and I tried not to try too hard to figure it out, but I had people who said, I voted for Donald Trump because he's different and he doesn't talk like a politician and I'm voting for you because you're different and you don't talk like a politician. We don't agree on anything policy wise i am i ran for office because of donald trump um and not in a good way mm. right like i woke up the day after the 2016 election and expected to look out the window and see the world on fire and it wasn't and that horrified me and i figured out how to get involved um but and i think this is what fetterman has tapped into as well um personality is just as if not more important than what your policy goals are, because we're not going to win people over with policy papers, especially when we're getting to know them on the doors or on social media or on TV. Like people want to know who you are and trust you. And I've had good feedback from lifelong Republicans who say, I don't agree with you on much, but I really appreciate how you communicate because you explain to us why. And I mm. trust you. You connect the dots, you communicate, yeah. you message, you don't talk down to them, you simplify without dumbing it down, and you, you create the narrative arc, which inspires an emotional response. And their response is, I might not, tr I might not agree with her on all this stuff, but I trust her. She seems real, she seems authentic, and she's passionate, and she's willing to fight for me. Yeah, and, and I, think, like, we, I, we I just don't think that that should be that hard. <laughs> No, it should like it. Sound, it seems so obvious. It's like be yourself, um, but that is a really hard thing for people to do. And it's you know, it's you get into this space, and and part of what I think has given me some of the freedom, I think, to do what I have is is I ran for office with a completely different career beforehand. I, I closed my consultancy, and even when I was running, my attitude was like, well, if it doesn't work out, I can go back to what I was doing before. And right now, I've been in this job for four years. Uh, Republicans have had a majority in the Michigan Senate since 1984, longer than I've been alive. So I've been in this job now for four, for four years. I've introduced 40 bills. I've never gotten a single hearing on anything. So frankly, when I give up and mm. get up and I give a speech like this, there wasn't some strategic Democratic messaging involved. I just figured if I'm going down, I'm going down swinging and I might as well protect my constituents while I'm at it. But that, I mean, that's the attitude that we want, right? Like, you know, I, I as you yeah, were saying, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, as you were saying the word authenticity, I said, I bet she didn't focus group before she gave her speech on the floor that ended up going viral. <laughs> I bet she didn't sit down, you know, with, with the consultants and say, so I'm thinking about guys, authenticity. What do you think? Right? Like you just got activated. And I think that that's the problem that the democratic establishment finds itself in is that it has 
kind of woven this 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 idea around the polls telling me this and focus groups telling me that and you know we need to talk about kitchen table issues which is what I get repeated back to me all the time and I'm like can we talk about the fact that people can't afford the mouths at their kitchen table can we talk about the fact that like mm. you're being forced into birth which means that there are going to be people at your kitchen table that you didn't actually plan for or can afford um and, and so I, I wonder what do you do? You, you say that you don't believe that we're out of time because we still have a democracy currently. Right. Like the but the clock is ticking. And, you know, the initial insurrection that we all watched happen in Michigan before the yes. the insurrection at the Capitol building tells us that these people are armed and they are ready to go. And so, Mallory, if you're looking at Joe Biden, if you're looking at Nancy Pelosi, you're looking at Chuck Schumer. What are you saying to them about this moment and how to capitalize on it? So so I think we have to wrap our heads around the fact that this is not normal. Um, I forget who told this mm. to me, but it sticks with me all the time. It's like if Democrats and Republicans are sitting at a table playing chess, Democrats are still trying to figure out our next move and Republicans have flipped the table over and lit the house on fire. And that's what it feels like is like we fundamentally as Democrats, we believe in this system and we want it to work. And look, I'm somebody I would love to be able to work across the aisle with my colleagues on issues. That would be great. That's not what's happening right now. So I think we all have to get into the mindset of this is not normal. It's fundamentally broken. And one of our two major political parties is trying to break it. So how do we respond in that mm. new reality, which means we've got to throw norms out the window. We've got to accept mm -hmm. that, you know, I don't even believe people are going to be able to hear about economic issues and the policies that we actually do have unless we blunt the culture wars first, because there's so much noise and chaos. And that's the strategy on the other side is to just burn us out until we quit. Um, otherwise, why would people come to our state capital with AR-15s, right? Like I was frustrated in my government. I did the hard thing and I ran for office. I put my name on a ballot. I worked my tail off for a year and a half. It's a lot easier to show up with guns and try to intimidate people. And we can't let that faction win. So I think, you know, all the way down the ballot, that has to be the attitude of Democrats is it's a really precarious time right now. And Republicans are doing this because it's winning. They're winning seats. They wouldn't do it if it wasn't winning. So we have to send a very, very loud and clear message, which is why I'm focused so hard on flipping the Michigan Senate, because if it's a losing strategy, then I think that's how we shake the moderate Republicans out of this like trance that they're in right now with Trump and Trumpism mm. and, uh, and extremism. That's the scariest thing to me is watching lifelong, mm -hmm. moderate, rational Republicans so willing to work with terrorist groups because it's winning. So that's, we got to get to a place like this is not normal. We can't act like it's normal and go from there. Uh, Mallory, I have a final question for you. Uh, you know, to, I, I love superhero origin stories. And as promised, uh, I, you know, we want to leave people on an inspiring note. I mean, this was all fantastic, but it is important for people to realize you've been at this job for four years, right? Yeah. You were a very successful industrial designer. You used to work for Mattel and Gawker. And then you're like, you know what? I'm going to run for office. And we're in a position right now, as you mentioned, that the, the playbook of fascism has always been to exhaust people, to intimidate yeah. them to the point where they tap out. We're seeing this with election officials. We're seeing this at hospital, hospital boards, school boards, city council, right? People are like, dude, this is not worth it. Or they get cynical or apathetic or they drown themselves like, you know, with the chaos of the day. 
But yeah. you then decided, you know what, I'm actually going to jump in. And so for those of our listeners who, who want to do something, can you give them some advice if they really want to jump in, mm -hmm. even at a local level, state senate, school board, city council, what should they do? How can they perhaps replicate your success? Because we do want to empower our citizenry. And the bar is so damn low, Come folks. On. Friggin' Lauren Bobart is a congresswoman. So That's if true. Trump was president, Bobart's a congresswoman. Yo, we can all jump in. The water is not that deep. Exactly. And I think there's two paths. So I'm going to start with the path is so you think you want to run for office. Um, I did not do this at all in a career. You alluded to it. I worked at Mattel. I designed toys, which nobody tried to kill me when I was designing Hot Wheels things, which was nice. Um, but I woke up shortly after there was a video that went viral after the 2016 election of middle school students chanting, build that wall at a Latina student. And that video was from Royal Oak Middle School, which was my polling place. So that's where I stood a few days earlier to vote for Hillary Clinton. And, and watching that video, just it broke something inside me because these were kids. These were kids that learned that it was okay to target somebody who looks different than you. And the family had to leave the district. They were getting so much harassment. And that, that is not who we need to be. So I Googled how to run for office. We all start somewhere. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, wow. And you it, actually it, Googled how to run for I office. I actually Googled it, yeah. <laughs> and I awesome. downloaded, there's a group called She Should Run, and they have a PDF yes. that's like a getting started guide. Um, so that was step one. And then eventually I found a group called Emerge America, which recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. So for everybody, like your background and experience matters. Our government is only going to work when we have a diversity of experiences that is reflective of the people we represent. It can't all be rich, white, old lawyers. It just can't be because that is not reflective of who we are. So you're wholly qualified and running for office is something you can learn how to do. There are groups out there, whether you are a uh, first generation college student, whether you're a millennial, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're a person of color, there are groups out there that exist to help you learn how to run for office and build a team. So that is step one. And then you just do it. And you realize that fundraising sucks, but it is a necessary part of it. And you keep making phone calls and you just do it because you need the money to run for office. On the other side, if you're like, heck no, I don't want to put my name on a ballot, but I do want to get involved. And I want to figure out how to be an advocate. I think right now people get almost mission paralysis because there are too many issues. Mm. There's gun violence, there's reproductive rights, there's book banning, there's the tax on democracy and voting rights. And it feels like there's just too much. Where do I put my time? So my biggest piece of advice is pick one issue that you are really, mm. really passionate about and sign up to be a member of an advocacy group that's already doing that work because they will teach you how to be effective. And it is going to be way more effective if you show up to one group every month than trying to do a little bit of everything. Like we can't all learn how to run marathons and play instruments and be master chefs, but we can do one thing really, really well. And if we all pick an issue and we get involved, then I think we're going to be okay. Oh, Mallory McMorrow, we cannot thank you enough for taking the time to join uh, Democracy-ish. And just again, thank you for your voice. Thank you for deciding to stand up for yourself, for the community. Um, and, and continue doing the work that you're, that you're doing. And I hope that more people will take you as a model, uh, and as a blueprint for how to fight back, because that's what we need more of. I and hope let's so be, too. let's we be your Flav of Flav pre, pre, 
let's be a fla- your favorite flavor flavor pre vh1 uh how can i uh, will be a hype man how can people find you how can people support you uh best way is on my twitter account which is at mallory mcmorrow there is a link in bio uh i am now fundraising to flip the michigan senate for the first time since 1984 and would love your support we're going to get it done in one of the most consequential swing states in the country Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali. And we will be back next week if we have a country left. Inshallah.